Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 16 this evening. We've been teaching for many weeks on the subject of the Holy Ghost, different aspects of the Spirit of God and what He will do for us, has done and will do for us. John 16 verse 13, How be it when He, the Spirit of truth, has come? He will guide you into all truth, for He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak. And He will show you things to come. He shall glorify Me, for He shall receive of Mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Back up to that last phrase in verse 13. He will show you things to come. I'm sure that we all have a story or a testimony that we could tell about the Holy Ghost warning us in some way or another or preparing us for something, revealing to us in some form or fashion things to come. But let's talk about it a little bit from a different standpoint, from a different angle. Certainly God wants to show us things to come so that we can be prepared. I think one of the greatest benefits and blessings uh, in my life, in my personal experience and walk with God, are the things that the Holy Ghost has warned me ahead of time to prepare myself with from the Word of God. But there's a bigger picture about the Holy Ghost showing us things to come. If he wants to show us things in our own lives, our own individual lives, we certainly appreciate that. We certainly recognize the value of that. But Paul speaks about some things that the Holy Ghost told him about things to come concerning the end of times. Now, it's everybody wants to know when Jesus is coming back. And I guess every generation has believed that they're the ones that would see his return. That seems to be a natural inclination for us. I don't know if that's a way of coping with or recoiling from physical death or if it's just something ingrained in us as a, a, an innate or a spiritual desire, deep spiritual desire to see Jesus come back. But Paul made some statements about how things would be or literally what people would be, how people would be and how they would operate in the last days. I've always had a hard time applying that or, or trying to understand that because it would seem that Paul would be most interested, the Holy Ghost through Paul, I guess, would be most interested in telling us what things are like in the church. But if you apply the, some of the things that he says about the character and the nature and the operation of man in, at the end, it's really hard to identify with some of those things in the church or among the church people. Now, there are some scriptures that we covered last week, and we hope you're here to hear, here to hear them. But if you weren't, it might be a good idea for you to, to get that tape or CD or whatever we produce now and, um, uh, and brush up on some of these things. But real quickly, one of the things that Jesus was tempted with in Luke chapter 4 is the devil showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said, I will give you these kingdoms and this glory if you'll just bow down and worship me. And then he said something very interesting. He said, for that is delivered unto me. The devil identifies that governmental authorities had been delivered unto him. Now, we know God didn't deliver it to him. And apparently, the comment is made in relation to man's fall. Because you know as well as I do that Genesis 126 
says that man was created to have authority. Well, that means man originally had authority in governments too, whatever governments he established. But things got messed up when man fell, when man sinned, and death and bondage began to rule and reign over mankind. But we also saw in two examples in Ezekiel chapter 28 and in Daniel chapter 10 that there are spiritual kingdoms, spiritual forces that influence governmental kingdoms. And if the devil really told the truth, and, and we have to assume that he did, if what he said to Jesus was a lie, Jesus would have stopped him right there and said, you don't have the authority or the, uh, the power to do anything about those kingdoms. But he didn't. He didn't challenge the fact or the statement that the devil made about the kingdoms of the world being delivered unto him. And we know that man still has authority because God didn't take it back. God's original purpose and therefore his eternal purpose was so that man would have authority on the earth. God never changes. And so whatever he intended in the beginning, he always intends. So that we, we see, therefore, that the devil can only gain access to and control the kingdoms of this earth or governmental operations by the influence of evil spirits that are working behind the scenes. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 called them wicked spirits in the heavenlies. Wicked spirits in the heavenlies. And you know as well as I do that, that most governmental systems have been ungodly throughout the history of time. So if we think about the greatest way that the devil has influence here over this earth, which is governmental systems and governmental operations, and then in that vein, look at what he said about the condition of man at the end. It makes a whole lot more sense. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'll show you some of what I mean. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. The word expressly means specifically, distinctly. In other words, he's saying, here's the Holy Ghost showing us things to come. The Spirit speaketh expressly or clearly, definitively, explicitly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now, when he's talking about departing from the faith, obviously he's got to be talking about Christians. You can't depart from the faith if you're never a part of the faith or in the faith. So he's talking about the church or at least the impact of the law of sin and death that's operating in the earth, the impact on the church. And folks, if you think about it, that's always been the rub. This, keeping the spirit of the world out of the church living according to God's word, in obedience to God's word, in spite of the way that the culture around us goes. That's always been the challenge. So obviously he's talking about the church being influenced, but how does he influence this? How does the devil bring to bear his greatest attack? Or how can he be most successful in his attack against the church? By corrupting it with the spirit of the world. Let's read again. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Folks, if we apply that to the things that are going on around us 
where government is concerned. Doctrines of devils just means teachings of devils. It means the influence of the devil for man to believe something other than what's true. There's a lot of things that are going on with, the, uh, with what is called the millennial church. And it's talking about the younger people in the age group that makes up the millennial age. I don't even know what the boundaries are, the classifications are. But there's a lot of millennials, pastors, that have lost sight of the Word of God to whatever degree they ever had it. And there are young people, primarily, that have been influenced by the education system so that they have substituted or they are substituting social justice, so-called social justice, to replace the Word of God. You see this climate change stuff that's going around, that's being promoted now through governmental uh, influences. And you've got a lot of Christians, again, it's primarily young believers, young Christians, or younger people that are Christians, maybe that's a better way to say it, because of their indoctrination through the education system. But you've got a lot of churches now that are either falling away completely or changing direction away from the Word of God to be more a more relevant, um, well, how do you describe it? I don't even know. To be more relevant to the, the day and the world that we live in with the things that they've been taught are crisis events like, for example, global, global warming or climate change. He goes on, and he says, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, folks, if we look at this, as I said, if we look at this in relation to or in connection to the greatest area of influence the devil claims to have, the area of influence that he tempted Jesus with, which was the kingdoms of the earth, if we look at it in that sense, and if we look at the devil's foothold, and, and it seems to me that politics is the area that he has the greatest influence, maybe a close second would be Hollywood, the entertainment industry. But if we recognize that his greatest area of influence is, is government, governments or governmental systems, then some of these things start making sense when we see the way that the governments are working. You may remember as well that Jesus said both in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 when he told uh, the disciples they were talking to him about the, the, uh, the temple, Herod's temple. And Jesus shared with them that there was coming a day where there wouldn't be one stone left on top of another. And that's exactly what happened in 70 AD when Titus, the Roman ruler, emperor, sacked the city of Jerusalem. He took apart the temple brick by brick and stone by stone. And the reason for that, they tell us, the historical records tell us, is because in the mortar between the stones, there was a mixture of gold dust used with whatever mortar-type stuff they had and developed in their day. And so Titus literally had the temple dismantled, big brick by brick or stone by stone, to get to the gold dust that was in the, uh, the mortar that was holding the stones together. And so it was exactly what Jesus said that it would be. And then the disciples talked about or asked him some of the things that he said about the end times. 
And they asked him, when will these things be and what should we look for? Now there's a gazillion signs for the second coming of Jesus. No signs for the rapture. But if we look at the things that are described that will be in place or things that will happen concerning the second coming of Jesus, then we can pretty well identify what things will look like before the church leaves. And of course, I'm talking about before the church is caught up in rapture. Now, let me back up a little bit and, and see if I can make these things clear. To be honest with you, this is my third attempt at trying to get some of this stuff out of my heart, and I haven't been very successful at it so far. So I'm going to do the best job I can tonight. If it works, maybe we're through. If it doesn't, I'll try again next time. But when Jesus starts talking to the disciples, he gives them several signs, tells them about things that will be in place. But one of the first things that he says, take heed that no man deceive you. He identifies that the time of the end, and, and let me differentiate between the rapture and the second coming. The rapture of Jesus, the rapture of the church is when Jesus comes and takes the church with him to heaven. Now, there are three schools of thought on the rapture. One is pre-tribulation, or that it will occur before the seven years of tribulation begin. The other is mid-tribulation, where seven, uh, three and a half years into the seven years of tribulation, the church is caught up into heaven. And the other is post-tribulation, uh, post so that the church will be caught up when Jesus comes back. Now, folks, at the end of the tribulation, the Bible says that Jesus will come back in power and in glory. That's the second coming of Jesus. The first coming was when he came to the earth as a man, born of a virgin. The second coming is at the end of the tribulation period. The rapture, however, is in one of those three time slots, either before the tribulation, middle of the tribulation, or after the end of the tribulation. Now, this is not a, a study of the book of Revelation, and there's a lot of detail that we're going to overlook when we talk about some of this stuff or with some of the things that I mentioned. But the Bible is really clear that there is a mid-tribulation rapture. Three and a half years into the tribulation period, all of a sudden a group shows up at the throne of God. Some people read that and interpret that as being the rapture of the church. But if you read closely what the Bible describes about this group, it's primarily a Jewish crowd. It's the people that are born during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. The Bible, however, concerning the church, Paul tells us that the church was not appointed to wrath. Well, the wrath of God is what the tribulation is called. Jacob's wrath is another thing that the, the, another title that's given to the tribulation period. So if the church was not meant for wrath, not appointed unto wrath, then that would have to mean that the tribulation period has not yet begun when the church is raptured if you accept the pre-tribulation account. Well, if the church wasn't appointed to wrath, then the greatest outpouring of God's wrath on the earth, which is that seven years of tribulation, the church can't be caught up at the end, and the church can't be caught up at the, in the middle. Even though some people come into the church, they're not born again or saved before the tribulation takes place, before the rapture takes place, but they get saved during the first three and a half years. Now, saying all that, 
recognizing that there really are no signs. Jesus said, no man knows the hour when he comes. Well, we can certainly know the hour when he comes back in glory at the end of the tribulation. There are some very clear guidelines on when the tribulation starts, and all you have to do is count seven years from the beginning point of the tribulation and identify when he's coming back then. But he talks about coming for the church as a thief in the night. He doesn't come back at the end of tribulation as a thief in the night. He comes back by rolling the sky back so that everybody can see the throne of God and Jesus return to the earth. He comes back as a triumphant king of kings and lord of lords. But again, that leaves us to decide when the rapture takes place. Folks, I firmly believe that the rapture takes place before the tribulation begins. In fact, I always I don't know if I was ever taught this in, in the Baptist church that I grew up in, but it was certainly implied. Maybe I just got the wrong idea from what they thought. I don't really think so. But maybe it was me instead of them. But I always had the idea that if the rapture occurred on a Friday, then Saturday the tribulation begins. But there's really no scripture to support that. The church could be gone for a period of time. I don't think it would be a long period of time. But the church could be gone for several years before the tribulation begins. We know what begins the tribulation. Ezekiel chapter 38 tells us about a war of a coalition of armies led by Russia. Iran is one of the key players in this as well. But it's primarily Muslim nations throughout the, the Middle East and some in Europe that attack Israel. That's the first day of the tribulation. God spares Israel and rescues Israel and defeats all this, this coalition army with a great and mighty swing of his sword, so to speak. There are a number of things that happen to this crowd, but this coalition army made up of about 17 different countries are defeated in one day. God, speaking of that victory, said he would show, show the heathen that he was God. And so we know what all these things are lining up to. That gives us, since we know about this coalition army that begins the tribulation period, that gives us some insight into what we should look for and how we should see the kingdoms of the earth beginning to, to maneuver in the ultimate position that they wind up in in Ezekiel chapter 38 when the tribulation begins. Well, we see a lot of those things going on today. We see some of those things happening with Iran exercising its military might and its power. You may not be aware of this, but just a couple of weeks ago, Russia and Iran had joint military exercises. Well, that speaks exactly to what the prophecy refers to as Russia and, and Iran are the leaders of this coalition army. There are a lot of other things that are taking place as well that are indications of where we are on the timeline. One of the things that I find interesting is if you look at all the times that Jesus was speaking to the multitudes, you can find only one place where he rebuked the multitude. Now, there were places where he rebuked the Pharisees. That almost was a regular occurrence. But there was only one place in Scripture where Jesus rebuked the multitude. And that was when he said to them that they can look at the sky and, and predict what the weather was going to be like tomorrow. 
but they could not discern the signs of the times that they were in. So the only time Jesus rebuked the crowd was when they didn't understand where they were concerning God's plan and God's visitation to them. Well, if that concerned him then, that should still concern us now, shouldn't it? Shouldn't we know where we are on God's timeline? Now, we can't be sure about everything, but we can certainly look at some things to see how they line up. So in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus is talking to the disciples, answering their questions about the end, one of the things that he says is, behold the fig tree. When the branches start to produce leaves, you know that summer's at hand. Luke's account says it this way. The fig tree, by the way, is, is a representation or an is, uh, illustration, an example of Israel. So in Matthew 24, Jesus says, look at Israel when you want to know the, uh, how things are progressing or when the end will come. Then in Luke chapter 21, he says, behold the fig tree and the other trees. <clears throat> so Luke's account adds not just looking at Israel, but also looking at the other nations of the earth as well. Now, folks, there are some significant things that have happened to Israel in our generation. In 1948, Israel became a nation again at the displeasure of all the surrounding nations that are still arrayed against Israel today, like Lebanon and Syria and so forth. Then in 1967, Jerusalem was recaptured and placed into the hands of the Christians. I'm, I'm sorry, placed in the hands of the Jews. It was restored from Muslim rule or taken out of Muslim rule and given back to the Jews. Now, in both of those cases, Jesus said that the generation that sees these things are the ones that he'll come back for, speaking of the rapture. Well, 1948 and 1967, I'm not sure how much further we can go for one generation to see both of those things. I don't know how to do the math on that. If you do, let me know. But if we look at the nations, and here's another proof to me that if we can look at what the devil is doing concerning governments, then we can get a clearer picture of where we are on the timeline. Now, some people would say, well, why do we need to know? Well, if you're playing in a sporting event, if you're playing in a football game, don't you want to know how many minutes are left on the clock? And not only that, but if you're down, if the score is against you, when you get to the last couple of minutes of the game, professional football teams have two-minute drills so that they know specifically what to do in those last few minutes of the game to try to bring out a victory. Well, that's the way the church ought to be, in my opinion. The church ought to know, know how many minutes are left in the game, so to speak. Now, again, we don't know the day or the hour. Jesus said we would never know that. So anybody that predicts when it's going to be, you mark it down, that won't be when it is. But the more that we know and the more we can identify, the better off we're going to be. Now, here's one of the things that's got me started on this. This last presidential election, 2016, when Donald Trump was elected president, there was a big change in the church. I was firmly of the belief and of the opinion that Hillary Clinton would be the next president rather than Donald Trump. 
I, in fact, went so far as to try to prepare people for what I thought was that inevitability. Thank God that wasn't the way it went. But that for the first time, and we've been pastoring, well, since 1986, since January of 1986. So what is that, 33 years? I don't know, something. It's over 30 years. But for the first time, I had people leave our church over politics. It stunned me. And I didn't realize right away, it took me a while to figure it out, but I didn't realize right away that there was a shift that took place in November of 2016. It caused a division among Christians that should never occur. Now, folks, I am not about politics. I keep up with current events. I keep up with what's going on around me in measure. Even that I don't pursue like I used to. And I'm not trying to turn Democrats into Republicans. I'm trying to make people strong spiritually. See, I'm of the opinion if if we're strong spiritually, if we know the voice of God, if we look to God to lead us, and guide us in everything that we do. That would include our politics. That would include our votes or the basis for our votes. But I'm all, I've, I've always been up front by saying politics is not going to save America. But right on the other hand, there's without a doubt to anybody with any level of spiritual wisdom to them whatsoever, any kind of spiritual insight there is without question something that has taken place over the last three years. And it's been in the works for a lot longer than that. Don't get me wrong. But something specific has taken place in the last three years. And that is evil has found a voice in America. That voice is the Democratic Party and the American mainstream media. Things that, would might, that might be hinted at before the last three years, before the last election that took place, presidential election that took place, now people are right out in front about it. There's never in the history of America been a godless political party, at least admitting to be a godless political party, but there is now. There's never been a, a media assault on our freedoms like there is and has been over the last three years. We're living in a different day than we did even five years ago. Now with that in mind, let's read some of these scriptures again. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Could those seducing spirits and doctrines of devils be political positions? Or maybe we should ask it this way. Does the devil want to seduce you away from the truth so he can fulfill his plan and his purpose in America? Well, that would have to be yes. Could seducing spirits and doctrines of devils result in a skewed idea concerning climate change and global warming or whatever they call it nowadays? Well, obviously it could. Speaking lies and hypocrisy. 
Folks, there's not too many things that are taking place in the American government and the politics thereof that don't fit that bill. There are people that are claiming that President Trump did exactly what we know they did. And their accusation is supposed to take the place of what actions they really took place in or took part in. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. It seems to me that in American politics, particularly with the Democrat Party, and again, I'm not saying the Republican Party is God's will or his vehicle or the way he operates in the earth. I don't think God's a Republican any more than he's a Democrat. I know he's not a Democrat, but that doesn't make him a Republican. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron. It's amazing to me the ease with which people lie, knowing full well that their lie can be proven to be a lie, and they lie anyway. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats I'm not sure what forbidding to marry is going to look like. Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, so shall the Son of Man be. He said, Noah's, the people of Noah's day were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. So I'm not sure how that lines up with what Paul is telling us the Holy Ghost said concerning forbidding to marry. Could it have something to do with the transgender or the homosexual agenda and the things that are taking place? Yeah, I guess so. We haven't seen clearly what that would be yet. But notice something else it said, commanding to abstain from meats. Folks, one of the things about this global warning stuff is because they've now identified one of the greatest sources of methane gas on the planet comes from cows. So you got to get rid of the cows. Well, who's going to say, okay, get rid of the cows that likes to eat meat? But have you noticed or have you read anything about these attempts that people are trying to make hamburgers and beef out of plant protein and that kind of thing? Why in the world would anybody even experiment with that? How in the world does that make sense? Well, if laws are passed and enacted concerning what the Democrats want to do concerning global warming, it's going to be the only fallback position anybody has. Now, is that the way it's going to go? Well, if, if we're interpreting what the Holy Ghost is saying to be right, then yeah, it has to go that way. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Let that sink in. Those that believe and know the truth. Those that believe and know the truth. There's a lot of the modern day church that don't know the truth. Now, if they believe, if they don't believe and know the truth, if they don't fall into this category, it doesn't mean God doesn't love them. It doesn't mean God doesn't have a plan for them. I'm talking about Christians. Because <clears throat> there are a lot of Christians that have the wrong idea about how the country ought to go and what the country ought to do. God doesn't love them less because they have a skewed idea or an incorrect idea. But let me draw you back to the first thing, one of the first things that Jesus said about the end, and this again is in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. 
Jesus said, take heed that no man deceive you. Take heed that no man deceive you. Now, folks, let me put this in a simplistic illustration. If the Republican Party, if God spoke from heaven and said, I am a Republican. And then the devil spoke up and said, I'm a Democrat. I'm thinking that voting should be real easy under those circumstances. I'm thinking the church might finally get their act together and do what's right in the political realm. That may not be true. That might not affect a lot of people in their beliefs or their votes. So knowing the truth is the key element not to be deceived. But not everybody knows the truth. Not everybody that's born again knows the truth. Look with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. He said, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. The word perilous, perilous means dangerous, but it comes from the root word that means strength reducing. He's saying the last days will be such that if you're going to maintain any spiritual strength, you're going to have to have to do it on purpose. It's not going to come naturally. It's not going to come easily. You're going to have to decide in the last days that you're going to be strong and do what's necessary to be strong and to stay strong. In the last days, perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Do you know how big the market is for selfie sticks? It's a huge market. This is the selfie generation. Well, folks, that's not just true for the man on the street. That's true. It's exhibited a different way. But we can certainly see that to be true in politics. And that same spiritual atmosphere has crept into the church. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful and unholy. Apply that to the government and the politics that are taking place in our country right now. This reads almost like a resume. Without natural affection. Now some people say that that's talking about homosexuality and, and I don't have any doubt that that will increase. But this word, not without natural affection, it's not talking about homosexuality. It's talking about the breakdown of the family. It literally means no love for your own kin. So people are turning away from family relationships to something else that they consider to be or deem to be more important. Without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers. We've just been through three years of the Russia hoax. And now we're just ramping up for the Ukraine hoax. False accusers. We read just a minute ago, speaking lies and hypocrisy. Are you aware of the fact you've heard about, how many of you have heard of the thing about Joe Biden and his son working for the Ukrainian gas company? Is that pretty common knowledge among everybody? Well, did you know that Nancy Pelosi's son works for a Ukrainian gas company? Did you know 
that Mitt Romney's son works with a Ukrainian gas company. Why don't we hear those things? Why don't we know that? One of the things President Trump promised to do is drain the swamp. I think we're just finding out how big that swamp is. We've got a situation where a whistleblower or two, maybe more by now, I don't know, we'll see, where the accusations are made in spite of the fact that we have the transcripts of the call itself that the whistleblower is blowing the whistle for. And the accusation is given more credibility than the truth of the transcript itself. Does that make any sense to anybody? Without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those, despisers of those that are good. Here's the attack against the church that's coming, folks. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. This word traitors jumps out at me. We know that over the last three or four years, we know things that have been done to compromise the national security and classified information being leaked and so forth. We know the people that have done these things, and nobody seems to care. How do these people not go to jail? Five years ago, they would have gone to jail. Five years ago, there would have been a totally different attitude in the country among the people. But it's like ho-hum. How do these people not go to jail by, after breaking the law in such a blatant manner? Sharing classified information that nobody's supposed to have. Verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. <clears throat> having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. One of the most recent things that have happened is when this impeachment in inquiry, before it really started gaining steam, it was just a couple of weeks ago that Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi said that she was going to prayerfully consider the impeachment proceedings. Well, since she cho cho has chosen to go forward with it, I guess she got her answer in prayer, huh? And I guess we shouldn't expect anything more than, <coughs> than what has happened because I remember that she also prayerfully considered her stance on abortion some years back. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. So I guess since she prayed about it and, and came out with support for abortions, 300,000 babies killed each year, over 2.5 million since the time that abortions were made legal in this country. I guess we have to conclude that God's in all in for abortion. <coughs> Folks, does anybody really believe that? Even people that support the Democrats' position, did they really believe that God's on that side? If he is, he's changed. 
because the Bible clearly says thou shalt not murder. King James translates that into thou shalt not kill. But it's not the word kill, it's the word murder. See, some people say that you can't be for abortion or you can't be against abortion <coughs> and be for capital punishment. Because they take the position that killing is killing. And the Bible doesn't take that position at all. The commandment is not thou shalt not kill. The commandment is thou shalt not murder. Murder is the shedding of innocent blood. Now, I don't know what qualifies as the shedding of innocent blood more than abortion. But there were times where God told Israel, when David was king, there were times where God told Israel to go to war with their enemies and kill them all. Well, that wasn't shedding innocent blood. Capital punishment is not shedding innocent blood. But abortion certainly is and always will be. No matter what governmental powers do what, it will always be the shedding of innocent blood. Look with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. The word fable means fiction. In other words, what the Holy Ghost is telling us about the condition of mankind toward the end. Is that they would rather believe the lie than the truth that stares them in the face. Now, folks, if that's not a description of the political party and the political system we have going on in the country that we live in today, I don't know what is. Now, there's a lot of things that we can talk about and a lot of things that we could focus on concerning other prophecies and things that the Holy Ghost has shown us. For example, one of the things that has taken place, I think it was Isaiah that prophesied 2,700 years ago that the Dead Sea would again produce fruit, literally fish. And they just found fish in the Dead Sea this year. The Dead Sea is the area that was affected by the hail of fire and brimstone that came down on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's right close to where the Dead Sea is. It's right at the base of the mountain that takes you up to Masada or that Masada is, uh, sits on top of. And there are a lot of things that are taking place that are indicators to us of the time that we live in. Another thing that you may not have heard about just a couple of months ago in August, there's a prophecy in Lamentations, I think it's chapter 5, verse 18 that refers to the desolation of Israel. And because of the desolation of Israel, foxes are in and around the city. Well, they found a, a, a group of foxes that made their way just a couple of months ago to the Wailing Wall. Now, folks, foxes don't live in that part of the world. 
Not only that, but you may recall that the Bible tells us that after that coalition army referred to in, Genesis, in uh, Ezekiel chapter 38, after that coalition army is defeated, it's such a, uh, a massive defeat that it says birds of prey shall rip the flesh off of the, the dead corpses of the dead bodies as kind of a divine cleanup crew. Well, there's some Israeli scientists, bird specialists, bird scientists, whatever they're called, that have identified just this last year 172 different species of predators, predatory birds. It's unheard of. It's unprecedented. Some of the places that these birds have migrated from to get to Israel is way out of bounds and out of range for what those birds should be able to do. Folks, that's never been the case ever before in the history of mankind. Things are lining up toward the end. And the Holy Ghost is showing us what to look for. I used to think that the first thing that Jesus said when the disciples asked him about when the end would come, the first thing he said was, take heed that no man deceive you. Somehow or another, I just thought that that was him getting started with telling them what to look for. But I've since come to realize that the greatest sign that there is is mass deception. And folks, we've got that going on in the church today. It's happening all around us. But there's good news. The good news is it won't be long before we see Jesus. Now, folks, how should we react to that? I know I've got kind of mixed feelings about it because there are things that I want to accomplish, things that I want to do here on the earth. Once I see Jesus, I won't remember what they were. And I think it's safe to say that as much as we are able to understand, we still have some time. But folks, we should be so beside ourselves in anticipation of Jesus' return. Excited that his return appears to be shorter and shorter, the hour nearer and nearer before we see him. We should be so thrilled at that prospect that we should live our lives and and should be living our lives like it's the last couple of minutes of the game. Jesus said the time was short at the very beginning of the church. Paul said these were the last days 2,000 years ago. Well, if those were the last days when he was here, what does that put us? The last of the last days, maybe? The Holy Ghost wants us to know where we are so that we can live all in for the kingdom of God.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who shows us things to come. We thank you, Lord, for the wisdom that your word has given us so that we can see and recognize the truth. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for guiding us into all truth. Guide us into the reality of the world that we live in. Guide us into the reality of Jesus' soon return. Guide us into the reality of right versus wrong. That we may always take sides with you, Father, and resist evil. Make a stand against it. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly. Come quickly. But until you're here, help us, Lord, to occupy till you receive us unto yourself. We ask these things in Jesus' precious